Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we'll be speaking to the dream catchers. These are people who went after their dream jobs and got them. Today, I am extremely excited to be sitting down with Peter Nichols. Peter's a photojournalist. He is an award-winning photographer. He's been in almost every major combat and international zone. He has covered the Oscars. He's currently based in the UK working for Reuters, but spent a huge part of his career working at the Times. Peter, welcome to the show. Hello there. Thank you for having me. So, Peter, photojournalist, it's one of those kind of dream jobs for a lot of people. And, you know, we we spoke before about the pressures and kind of what comes along with that. And what I'd love to do, actually, is just sort of start from the beginning. Um, first question is, did you always want to be a photographer? Uh, I did know. And actually, it's funny because you mentioned at the beginning about dream jobs it was actually sort of my number two dream job. My first dream job was to fly. Um, and I clearly wasn't smart enough to do that. So um, thankfully I had a, a, a second option. So uh, dream job number two kicked in and um, I'm delighted it worked out that way because I've had so much fun with it and um, enjoyed it. And no pun intended here, sort of clicked with it as a, as a profession, um, starting out as a sort of keen teenage amateur. So Yes, it's a dream in many ways because of the things and the places you see. Uh, but um, it's, it's, it's been fabulous and still is. So tell me about how you got into it. What was your, you said you wanted to, to be a pilot and that didn't work out. So how did you get into photography? So in, in between, after sort of losing that option, you know, I thought about it long and hard and the various uh, aspects of photography because it is a wide reaching discipline if you like and you can do so much with a camera uh, and so many sort of genres if you like but um originally i was thinking about advertising the more sort of glamorous advertising studio commercial world but i fell into into the sort of journalism element of it and um after sort of researching that and looking at work of great photographers over the years, I felt that that had a bit more more of a kinetic lifestyle if it was to work out. I researched ways of entering the profession and going back the year, this is going back to sort of the, the early mid eighties. And you, you could study this to a certain point. Um, there were journalism schools that, that concentrated on photography as well. So I did it that way. And in the UK, we have uh, an organization called the National Council for Training of Journalists. And they have this one course in Sheffield, which was purely for press photography and with a future to entering uh, newspapers after that course uh, on like a um, sort of apprenticeship trainee indentured basis. So I got on that onto that course and it's very, very uh, clearly directed at that one aspect of photography. Um, and so having spent a year at college doing that, um, I then got a job on a small local provincial newspaper down in Wiltshire and they sort of took me on as a trainee for a couple of years uh, and it really took off from there so even you know starting small is really the best way because I think that 
people have dreams and people uh, look at the sort of the glamorous and the most successful elements of a career. And, but I think you can have too much too soon. So starting small, starting at a local paper, understanding journalism, understanding photography more, learning every time you go out and do an assignment. In those days, we had the physical process as well of, um, of, of when shooting film, we were developing films, making our own prints. So it was a whole sort of creative technical thing if you like as well and that all had to be perfected and learned and improved upon so starting on a weekly newspaper was ideal rather than sort of hitting the big smoke and you know getting into the dramas of big sort of national international news it was a great way of beginning i loved it from that moment and after a couple of years there doing what i had to do with the organ that organization and my ambitions took me to a provincial news agency and they were supplying more bigger, if you like, national stories for the national newspapers in London and sometimes overseas. So it was at the next phase, the next step of a career. And so I, I did that for a couple of years. I then got familiar with various newspapers and what we used to call then Fleet Street, which is a term we use for the main sort of hub of British national newspapers. Sadly, that doesn't exist as a place where the papers are. They've all disappeared to very different parts of, of, of London and, and, and the country, in fact. Um, so I, I went to London after two years of, a, of an agency of agency work down in, in Bristol. And then I fell in with a newspaper. At the time, it was called Today Newspaper, um, which ultimately became part of the Murdoch stable and, you know, elevated again to, to the sort of national level. Um, so again, bigger, more national-leaning stories. And that sort of was my start, if you like, on the next ascent, which was, you know, sort of progressing in, in Fleet Street in, in national journalism. That job disappeared, unfortunately, when uh, Murdoch decided to shut that newspaper in 95, but it was part of the stable of his newspapers. So we had The Sun, The News of the World and The Times. Thankfully, because I was the right age, I guess, and they didn't want to get rid of all of the staff when they shut that newspaper, um, I was offered a job on The Times. And that started a really fantastic couple of decades for me. The journalism did become more serious. It was a much more intellectual, heavy newspaper. And we had bigger stories around the corner with the end of the Balkans conflict. And then we had the war on terror start uh, at the turn of the millennium. So it was kind of, that was my time, if you like. It was my age. It helped a lot because I was still kind of, you know, mid-late 30s. So fit and able and ready to go. And... Um, had enough experience as well, having done the years before that to be able to handle myself professionally in difficult situations and, and come up with what was required. So I had 20 great years there covering all sorts from not just the conflict stuff, but um, the great thing about working uh, in journalism. We, you call me a photojournalist, but some people prefer to use the term press photography or press photographer. Um, and you cover a whole range of disciplines. So it's not just sort of news and hard news every day. You do feature work, you do gentler stuff, interviews, portraits, a bit of entertainment and showbiz, also sports. So it's a whole sort of gambit of, of work, um, which is really the appeal for many people because it, it covers a whole range of different disciplines and you're not stuck doing the same thing day in, day out, maybe like you would be if you worked in a studio or just did portraits or just did... A certain thing that suits some people but didn't suit me so the newspaper um, experience and journalism experience was you know the best way of achieving what I wanted to do in my 
you know, wish for for my my photography career. So yeah, that took me to uh, through two great decades there. In 2014, there was a whole problem with Murdoch's London operation, and there'd been some issues with uh, the sign of the news of the world over phone hacking incidents, which you may have heard of. Um, I, I guess many of your listeners may may remember that, but it was a complex um, period, and it forced uh, Murdoch to shut down one of the newspapers, which was the News of the World. As a result of that, the Times, which was always losing money, but he wanted to own that title because it was a, a sort of a world-leading brand and a very famous title to, to, to have, he was kind of prepared to support it. That support disappeared, if you like, at that period because it had to stand on its own two feet and make money in its own right. So I was a, I was told I was collateral damage when they made some sort of swinging redundancies there. So um, that's when I find myself back freelancing again. Um, and then picked up by Reuters. So that's where I am now. And my work is very much domestic in UK, not traveling as much, but also important and rewarding, covering the big British stories of the last um, seven or eight years, from Brexit, British politics, the coronavirus issues, uh, and plus sports and entertainment and lots of royals as well. So it's, it's again, the, the cross-section of work and disciplines continues, a different organisation now. And Reuters being a, a global news agency, they have these more localised bureaus around the world, and they are not the end user. They are supplying, if you like, uh, many of the big media organisations, whether it's TV companies, because they all have websites now, so they all want still imagery, traditional newspapers, magazines, all sorts of news outlets. So it's a, it's, a, it's a huge opportunity to see your work used far and wide. So yeah, still hard at it. It's amazing. And I, I can I can picture most photos with that Reuters at the bottom right corner. Um, yeah. And does it, will it have your name on there too? So if any of our listeners are looking for your photographs. It does mostly. I mean, certainly you, you do see that in most newspapers. I mean, we can't possibly see everything all the time because it's obviously it's global reach, but if you look in the newspapers in the UK, certainly with the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, they tend to use Reuters slash the photographer's name. So it would be Reuters slash Peter Nichols or the other way around. Uh, and, you know, lots of newspapers around the world and magazines do that, as they do also online with the material when they use it. They, they, they credit the work then as well. So, um, yes, you, you can see the name of the, uh, of the photographer. So our listeners need to be looking out for that. That's what I'm, that's what I'm advising everyone. <laughs> so I want to go back to kind of this, this career progression, because I think it's important to touch on a couple of things that, that you spoke about there. One is the fact that you started small. And we talk about this a bit with our, our listeners is the fact that sometimes being a bigger fish in a smaller pond actually allows you to have more responsibility than working at a bigger named organization or for you, a bigger media outlet. And I think that's really interesting that you kind of echoed that in terms of journalism as well as actually being in a local paper. It sounds like you had more responsibility than maybe you would have done had you gone and been an intern somewhere much bigger. That, that is absolutely true. And had I been in, a young photographer in that position working on a national newspaper, which did happen occasionally, but mostly people came through the route that I did. Um, you know, you'd take your picture and then you'd say goodbye to your film. That would be probably handed over to a, 
a bunch of darkroom technicians and then editors would see it. So you'd, you'd kind of lose part of the process yourself, that experience. Mm. Um, and it would be then others to do that. Nothing wrong with that. But in terms of you learning, I guess you want to be, one would want to be more involved in those early early days. So yes, it's, it's a bigger fish in the smaller pond. But the main thing really is about gaining confidence uh, and, and learning as much as you can at that level. Because when you do hit that big pond, uh, you can make a bigger splash and uh, keep afloat uh, much more solidly than if you were, you know, thrown in it first off. And, and I think that's another important thing I wanted to pull out is actually you talked about how your experience to date allowed you to handle very stressful, very big, very delicate situations a lot better. And actually without that experience, it's that's the type of thing, you know, a lot of times when you're young and you're ambitious and you think you can do everything and you can do a lot of stuff and you're very capable the one thing that you cannot have is experience and you can't make up for that other than doing your time. And so do you find that also in photography is true is kind of the more experience you have, the more you're able to deal with that, those situations? Uh, of course. Um, I'm sure like with so many sectors, um, it, it's also a learning about yourself. So yes, you're learning your trade, your profession, uh, whatever industry you're in. Uh, we know what I'm talking about here with my, 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 my industry. It's obviously technical as well as experiential learning, but you learn about yourself. And I think you need to know equally as much as you need to know about your discipline. My, in, obviously, in my case, it's photography, journalism, which is growing all the time. You need to know about yourself and how to be able to handle yourself. If you are in adverse situations or suddenly you're in front of a president or a member of the royal family or a CEO, or next day you may be in front of some poor homeless person or someone suffering in a really terrible situation at each end of the spectrum, you need to be able to handle yourself in those scenarios personally as well as professionally so again it's too much too soon thing can harm and the point of me saying that was i i have seen one or two people over the years who've come in who were bright and energetic and smart but it was like too much it was an overdose of like a sensory overdose if you like there's so much going on and because it was quite over overawing then they would possibly leave the profession and so the profession is losing out and they're losing out because it was, you know, just, just, just too much to absorb at that time. So I just do, th I just think little steps initially, and then, you know, you, you'll know your own abilities, you'll know your own weaknesses and your own strengths. That will come in time, and then you feel much more confident in how you're placed and how you're assigned to to, to commissions and stories, um, and what suits you best, and you will have that confidence. So. Confidence is an interesting one. And one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about was the first time you ever went into combat as a photographer. So you've done, you've done a lot of areas where there, there has been, I mean, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera. And the first time you ever went in there, what is that like as a photojournalist to, to go in and you're actually in the middle of the action? It's a good question, actually. And it, it's it, in a way I was, I was lucky. I mean, there's, horrible things happening around the world you know always but I guess my first experiences with adversity and that kind of threat to yourself as well as because you are obviously ultimately you're worried I guess your first thought is your own survival and preservation your next thought is my god I've got to get this shot properly I've got to work 
properly. I've got to produce. The reason why I'm here is I've got to produce. Um, but there are other things that can prepare you for it, like just maybe domestic riots or, um, you know, really big group jobs where there's lots of journalists and people pushing around. So there's a physical element to it. So you kind of need to understand how it works in big crowds and, you know, you can be in an aggressive situation. So again, you're learning about yourself there. What I'm trying to say is people generally didn't go from a sedate, controlled work mode lifestyle into you know, the extreme of, of people shooting guns at each other. So there's a kind of a halfway house. It's, it's experience you build up so you can start to understand how uh, unpleasant situations can develop. So um, you, you don't go straight in at the sharp end. Having said that, there has to be a first time when something goes bang or whiz or uh, whatever happens in, in conflict. And so, again, it's a moment where you learn something about yourself and you learn about people you're also with, which is also important because so often you're with a team, you're with other colleagues and characters, and you want to be cool kind of moving at the same level. Um, and so it's important you sort of, you know, you're all aware of what's going on and, and handle yourselves in the right way. Yes, it's when you, when you hear a crack, when you see guns fired on TV or whatever, in, in a movie or something, it's, it's a gun being fired, it makes a bang, it's aggressive. But when it happens in real life and you hear a real whistle and a real crack, you think, my God, that's a real shot with a metal flying through the air. That could do some harm. So you do. You know, you do, you know, get yourself small and head down and, and, and try to process what's going on. And once you understand the situation and the people around you, especially if it's professionals and soldiers or other people that are used to it, you then come out of your shell a little bit and then start to operate. Um, and then you, you learn from that moment onwards. And, um, you know, hopefully each day you go out, you come back, you've managed it, you've done the work. Um, you've lived through it and then you, you know, you grow for the next time. Um, some people do get hurt. It's, it's, it's a numbers game, but you know, mostly people conduct themselves with the want to survive and, um, take care. Very few gung-ho people. It's all sort of calculated risk amongst the real professional types that do this. And you just take care and you have to sort of be hyper alert to what's going on, not just with your own story. It's the thing, it's, a, it's the conflation of different things. You're trying to stay safe, but you're also trying to produce something newsworthy, something reflective of where you are, tell the story, be honest, be fair, but also, you know, stay alive. Mm. So um, interesting question. And I, I hopefully I've answered it there. <laughs> I think you have. And, and, and interestingly, what I'm kind of thinking of in terms of if you're translating that into business is, you know, sometimes you're taking huge risks in business and you have to just the first time you do it, the first time you do a reorganization, the first time you think about doing something but different, you don't have bullets flying by your head, but the more senior you are, the more responsible you are for those decisions. And again, you have those calculated risks and you're thinking about sort of how are you making those decisions? And as you said, looking out around it, you don't walk into the middle of the gunfire. You don't stand between the two people fighting and say, can I get a good shot here? You know, you no, think no. about where can we where can we tell this story from, but also keep ourselves safe? And I think also in business, a lot of times it's like, where can we take these calculated risks, but actually keep the company safe? And I mean, it's a, it's a weird parallel to draw, but it's kind That's of- 
It's, the, the bullets are an interesting metaphor because you know they're, you're making huge decisions with, with in, in business in the corporate world, which, for the record here, I know absolutely nothing about. <laughs> um, and, and people are are you responsible for money? You're responsible for jobs. You're responsible for organisations, propriety, all the rest of it. So, you know, it is important, and it it is you know, they are metaphorical bullets, and you want to make the right decisions, and you you can get hurt, of course. Uh, you know, again, in other sectors, it's the same thing. Um, there was a, you know, there's a compromise when there was some, whether the two main wars that we knew were going in parallel, which were Afghanistan and Iraq. There were two ways of approaching these stories, um, which we did do both, just to try and be fair. You go in unilaterally. So you go into a country, you go into a place and you'll cover it under your own steam. So you'll go to where safe you are set up your operation and with the help of amazing local fixers, which always need to be credited and praised more than they are. Um, you know, your, your, your local team of a driver, of a, of a fixer, of a translator, even sometimes security, you go and try and do the story of the day or the, the, the era on your own, then the compromise, and we would, we would say it was a compromise, is to maybe get embedded and go and cover some of the stuff with the military you lose a bit of your independence there because you've got no control over where you are really and what you're seeing. That's down to your hosts who are, you know, the military that, that you're, you're in bed with, hence the name embedding. And uh, sometimes it was the only way of going to an area that was so maybe hot or dangerous that you couldn't go unilaterally. You had to take that option and go with the, go with the military. So, you were prevented from seeing some things, not for any reason other than it just it's safety. So you you would try and tell the story as best you can, but you're only able to do what you can see, and you're at their mercy for that. They decide, you know, what it was that you were getting involved with. There was a two two sort of pronged approach to that. Which was the most dangerous? Ultimately, I don't know. I mean, was it more dangerous to be with military, where you know any uh, opponents out there in the um, in that country were, were sort of targeting them or were we more susceptible on our own? It, it's, it's a, it was a difficult one and we used to scratch our heads about that all the time. And let, let me ask you a question around kind of the work that you've done. So, you know, I mentioned before that you are an award-winning photographer and, you know, people can, people can find those amazing photographs that you've taken. Um, there's some, I think one of them came out of Afghanistan and, um, and, and, and also one came with the fall of Saddam Hussein with the, with the uh, statue that fell and the the gentleman who had the American flag, I think you took. Oh yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, there was, was, yeah, I mean, that was really it was. It was the day the Americans liberated Baghdad, um, the day before my fortieth birthday, in fact. And um, uh, it was yes, it was a huge event. But it was almost like one giant photo call. I mean, the world's media were there. It was at the epicenter of the city, um, you know, and we all thought from what we could what we can remember from, from George Bush and the Americans sort of lead on this, that, uh, you know, once you take a capital city, that's kind of done deal and war over. Little did they know that it was going to be 10 more years and the rest of, of strife. Um, so it was, a, it was a very symbolic moment mm. for many people. But also, I mean, it, oddly, it wasn't that it didn't have a feel of danger about it. All the bad people inverted commas, or the, the old regime had disappeared. And we were left with 
the population who seemed very friendly and glad and relieved those that had hung on that the, that the, the West or the Americans in that case were in town. And so it didn't feel threatening. It was just like it was a, it was a seismic moment because of what was going on in the capital city. You're felling a statue. There's, there's, you know, there's drama in the air and it's a, a different culture, an exotic place. It's just, you know, it was, it was, it was a mixture of all sorts of emotions and experiences. Um, so yeah, that, you know, it produced, as we all know, great imagery. Um, it was very dramatic. Um, I don't know how spontaneous it really was, but it, you know, they, they, these guys got there probably quicker than they thought they would. And they thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, there was all sorts of fuss about that moment. Actually, it's very interesting. The little sort of cameos you don't necessarily pick up through your TV, radio, or stills pictures, but the locals were around there watching the statue fell, but they didn't want the American flag over his face because they mm. thought that was an offence to them. They wanted the Iraqi flag. Then that was some people thought that was a problem, so they took the flag off. And it was there was all sorts of little local spats going on over this, and the, the Marines and the engineers who were trying to do the right thing for the people at the time would, would sort of haphazardly, with no ill intent, but they were just getting it wrong. So um, things like that, which was which is very interesting. But, um, um, uh, you know, it's we could go on for hours and hours and hours. We, we, all, we all know how that sort of conflict took its course. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it did produce pictures. And, um, um, but, you know, I'm not just about war. I've done lots of other stuff and, um, certainly, like in the last few, last few years, it's been very much domestic politics. So, mm. you know, just taking pictures of uh, well-known British politicians, which is the most difficult thing to do because mostly it's just people in suits, right? Just going from office to office, but you can get some great moments, and which is why it's even more difficult in a way, and more um, more of a challenge to get good, sort of potent imagery of these people in our daily lives, because it is, it's, it's very bureaucratic. It's not, it's, it's men and women walking out of offices in the center of a city, which is, you know, just going about its business. So um, you try and sort of seek that special moment. If you're in a conflict zone or somewhere that's hot like that, there's drama all around you. So mm. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm just saying you've got more opportunity and there are lots of problems and stuff related to that, but you've got more opportunity to to come up with some stark, amazing material than you have, you know, working in a, a major Western functioning city um, of people just looking very businesslike. It's so interesting. And, you know, again, just relating this back to business, I think it's, it's quite interesting when you're in crisis mode, a lot of times that's when a lot of innovation can come. Um, so when you're in that crisis mode, there's more opportunity for innovation, but actually finding innovation in the everyday when things are going well and not wanting to really change the status quo is quite difficult. So similarly, when you're in a conflict zone or you're somewhere where there's, it's, you're an exotic place, as you said, or someplace where there's a lot of imagery that you can pull from, you've got lots of subject matter, you can make a great image, but actually finding that great image in the everyday can be what's quite difficult. And, and I wanted to ask, though, so you said you've done portraits, you've done feature work, you've done sports, you've done entertainment, you've done the government stuff. What has been kind of the best photograph for you that you've taken? What is what do you really what have you really been like? That is something I'm really proud of. Oh, it's a really difficult question. That I guess lots of photographers get asked. It, it, sometimes it's on the day you just kind of feel relief. It could be something quite 
bland or you know just not really visually exciting but it's something you might just might you might need and just the relief of getting that picture um would be enough to sort of think that's great that's fantastic because that's just what we need for the here and now it doesn't necessarily endure the test of time as a memorable sort of historical image but you can have that feeling quite a lot so without trying to be awkward um i, I think i think you're i guess you're saying what what sort of enduring images um have there been um i, I kind of like Sort of, the, I mean, the, not, not so much single images. Yes, of course, the you know the statue falling down and like the very first bombs falling from B fifty twos in northern Afghanistan. That, I mean, that was kind of amazing stuff, and it was kind of historical and uh, important, and you know, amazing to to, to witness. But I, I quite like doing essays, and when I was at the Times, I did more of that. And it does. It did take me back. I mean, I went to Gitmo a couple of times, and I went to. I was in Iraq a lot, but there was one essay I did in, uh, which was basically shot in two or three hours, in a camp on the main base near Baghdad at the old airport. I think it was called Camp Victory, and they had these people who were suspects who were scooped up in various raids across the city and the the region over the years who they thought were bad influences or terrorists or whoever and they put them into this um compound and everyone was kind of stripped there you know they're all anonymous people just walking around in yellow suits and um we were let in by the americans i think named with the cia that's kind of they were running it they let us in to show this place and it was very neat and clean and organized but there's lots and lots and lots of people in there who we were told at the end, 80% of whom were innocent, ultimately, but they were part of a wider net-dragging operation at any one time, and the, maybe the, the 20% of the people that they wanted, and to get that 20%, they had to bring all the others in as well. So these had guys had a miserable existence, and the, the challenge for, for me and for us doing this story, we weren't allowed to show any faces, but we were kind of given free range to look around this place. So... Technically and, and creatively, it was a really it was a really important story to tell, and one I really enjoyed shooting. And it was such a challenge because you weren't allowed to show anyone or have anyone identified. So it was just shot in a different way than you would normally go about stuff, and focusing on different elements of a picture rather than focusing on a person. You'd be focusing on an item or a bit of the background or something else that's going on. Or, shoot the picture with sort of cutting their heads off if you like in the frame and, and what have you so and all these pictures had to be uh inverted commas reviewed by the the the, the americans running the the place um i guess we would use the word censored but they had to be reviewed um so we couldn't uh upset any of their rules and regulations and identify people which potentially was the right thing to do because it could have put people in jeopardy you know especially if they were innocent mm. Um, so that's a story that I, I think of a lot, and it's, it's it was quite bright. It was, it was very. It's on my website. It's um, um, it, it's very colourful and, and eye catching, but it was obviously a very serious story. I should be better armed with my response to this. I'm thinking. No, of I, I like that one, and I want to see it. Where does where's what is your website so people can my see website. it as well? Ah, it's it's Peter Nichols, which is double L S dot com. 
Com. Excellent. I'm going to, as soon as we, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to look at that. Cause I, I can, I, I'm visualizing what I think it's going to look like. And I can't wait to see what it actually did. What an, what an incredible photo shoot. I can't imagine the emotion and the kind of the creativity that had to come behind that as well. Well, it was all sort of counterintuitive because you, you know, press photography and journalism is all about people and it's mm. all about showing life and people and faces and characters and, and that's everything that you couldn't show. So it's kind of the opposite of what what one's instincts would have uh, normally sort of led you to do. Um, but lot, there are lots of single images. I mean, it, I've done fun pictures, if you like, fun in as much as they're not harmful. They're just trying to show people out of character, if you like, is because we all know from our TVs and our daily consumption and ingest of, of, of news and current affairs, especially some of the main global characters, what they look like and how they sound and what they do. So if you try and get something a little bit more offbeat, that's what is more engaging, I think, to a, to a reader, to a viewer. And, you know, getting moments like that is, 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 is you know, is, is, is the key. So it's a much, much smaller thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite sort of bashful about this stuff. I don't really like saying I've won this or won that, but there's a very small, um, competition that was run in the UK in the last few years. It was political photography of the year. I don't think many people entered it, probably, which is why I won it. Um, but uh, there's a collection, of pictures, a collection of pictures I took, and there's just one picture of Jeremy Corbyn, the British. He was then the British Labour Party um, leader, and uh, it was a small local, I think, a local election day across the UK. So it wasn't the national national general elections, and um, he he just stood outside the polling station, did a little pictures or posed if you like because they, they told us he was going to be there so, so mini photo call essentially quite drab and he just stood and closed his eyes and put his hands together to say thank you for us to sort of turning up and it just looked like he was praying and it was just the, again the most simple uh picture that came from nowhere and the, the next day it got used sort of so well everywhere and it was just other people got the same moment but maybe his eyes were open or his hands it's just one of those things we click luckily that that second and that's another picture that sticks in my mind it's only that's only the last four, four or five years you know after this long career something like that stays in my mind and uh it was quite funny because some people say oh that's jc and jc as we know stands for jesus christ as well as jeremy corbyn and he's just stood there <laughs> with his hands together praying and it was just it was kind of a very very funny moment um so there's things like that that can catch you out that you don't expect to you know to, to get because it's a few miles from home and it's in your own city and you don't expect to see, see stuff as you know that makes the the, the 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 people's the audience's eyes wider open wide as much as it would have a, a foreign dramatic dangerous story that's going on it reminds um, me that that bernie sanders photograph that went around with him in the mittens where it's precisely just, it's just that moment and it's yeah. just it is it's absolutely just grabbing something that grabs the attention you're seeing someone you see all the time i mean it's but, like oh my god what i would you know it's just like the little old man sat there but <laughs> it's the, the symbolism and the, the i guess the whole viral element of it was it was incredible it was incredible yeah, yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be an award-winning picture, but it becomes the most talked-about thing for for hours on end because it just goes bonkers, you know. So um, th there is a huge impact with still photography, and this, mm. you know, this is why I'm a, a still a big fan of it. It's not as appealing as it was for many young people for some bizarre reason, um, but it is a, it's great because you know we're all used to the moving image, certainly, and with, with 24-hour rolling news and cameras that are there all the time. But still, the still image has a valuable, important 
part in our sort of day-to-day consumption of news and understanding because you can catch really important moments and things that you just pause on and look at and you know understand maybe a little bit more of what's going on i love that so for all of the budding photographers out there who are thinking about going into this what what is your advice to them in terms of what do they need to be doing what are they what one of the things we've talked about previously is a lot of people think it's just a point your camera something click and you're a photographer which absolutely is not what you've described as the fact of getting to know your art, getting to know your craft, the fact that you were developing photographs, you learn composition, you learn how to find those moments, all the kind of development you did. But for somebody that wants to be a photographer, this is their dream and they want to be that dream catcher. What, what can they do? Okay. So overall with photography generally, um, Put away your iPhone. Yes, I know we all have phones and they all do wonderful things. Uh, and I think because of that, people are much more visually aware. And I would say an audience to professional work is actually more discerning now because we're so much used to imagery and taking our own imagery. But if you want to take it seriously, get yourself a proper camera. Put yourself in a situation where you've got a couple of lenses uh, and you know you learn some control about how to use the camera and how to use light. Try and turn off as many auto functions as you can and just learn and, and shoot what you want to see from your own work using the light, using shape. Be careful with your composition um, and just take picture after picture after picture. If you like landscapes, go and shoot beautiful landscapes and learn through experience. Play with the lights. Uh, you know, use water, use sunshine, use mountains whatever it is that you've got you know reflections it's 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 always about light 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 so whether you're photographing a mountain or a person it's get get the nice lights where it's available um and if you're in a place and you, you you see pictures happening all over the place but there's only one place where there's strong light or interesting light don't move around looking at everywhere else trying to find the your dream picture stay with the light and mm. eventually something will come there and you will get your moment this sounds a bit sort of nefarious but it's true just focus on where the light is and whatever you have to will come it will come there it will come to it and stay with or, or if it's a real amazing situation just stick with it and eventually with patience it will come it will come um but take pictures every time you i'm still learning right so every time you click that button you're learning, you're taking something, you're freezing a moment, you're doing something different. So whether it's the way you hold the camera, the length of the length of lens you're using, the aperture size, which can make so many creative differences to a picture or make something stand out or, you know, it's, it's, there's lots of technical stuff, which is easy to understand the principle of, but, you know, you can read about that. There's no end of literature and books and online learning. You can learn the basic principles of what lenses do and what apertures do and what shutter speeds do, but just practice and practice and practice and shoot. And you'll pick a theme that you like, whether it's sport, whether it's news, whether it's people and portraits, whether it's flowers, whether it's bees, whatever it is, animals, you know, um, you, you, you'll find what it is that you like. Uh, for me, it's just, it's about people and current affairs and news. And again, you just make relationships with, with folks and do nice portraits and studies and try and get some candor into there without, again, setting up stuff. You know, posed portraits are great, but just candor and daily life, um, it's amazing. But whatever it is, 
keep taking pictures and use your equipment and use it to its full potential. And, you know, eventually you'll come up with a body of work and then you'll get confidence and you'll get understanding. And if you really want to pursue it, um, you have to then start making approaches via whether it's to agencies or to libraries or places where you can start submitting work and have it sold. It, it is a minefield in some ways, but it's not because they're actually the, the, there's very few really good organizations. Um, but you've got to be driven, I think, and committed. Um, it's, 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 it's a very popular pastime with people and people want to leave it there as a pastime. I'm not saying everybody here listening to you wants to be a professional photographer, but you can get the most out of what you want to do, even as a, as a fabulous hobby. Um, just by choosing your theme, keep taking pictures, use the light properly, don't be afraid of anything. Um, the great thing is now everything's digitized, so you're not sort of running out and using loads and loads of rolls of film. You can just keep shooting and keep shooting in, in, until you get it right. Try and do as much manual stuff as possible. Obviously, focusing is kind of automated these days, but in terms of exposures and cropping and framing, just don't be afraid. Just get stuck in there and do it. Film or digital? Ah. <laughs> the age-old question. Mm. I love film, but mm. it's no good to me because yeah. it's my, my daily life says I have to be digital. Yeah. Uh, my One of my sons a couple of years ago bought, by complete coincidence, a film camera, which was the very first professional camera I had, an old Canon F1. And he, anyway, he put some rolls of film through it and got them back. And I saw his prints and I just kind of, my jaw dropped. I'd just forgotten how Amazing wonderful film pictures look because we're yeah. so used to the perfection and the sort of sharpness and clarity of digital imagery. Um, and I absolutely devoured his sort of prints that he got back. Um, so I love film, but the need is, is digital. So both is the answer. Film for yeah. the art, digital for the everyday. You can do both. Why not? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can, absolutely you can. Okay. Canon or Nikon, Nikon? How do you say it here? Uh, depends where part of the planet you're on. I think from your, your side of the pond, you say Nikon. We say yeah. Nikon. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Canon. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely, Canon. All day. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so just, I mean, just wrapping this up, I love the, I love the idea of staying in the light. Um, I like the idea that you you've shared with us about starting small, really crafting your trade, getting to know it, getting to be an expert in it, regardless of what it is and have some great top tips for budding photographers. And also one of those things that, that I came to in my life was I love photography. I actually had to write this down somewhere is I love photography, but I don't want to be a professional photographer. Yeah. And that's, and, and you can, that's fine, but you need to recognize that as somebody who loves it, that you can just do it as a hobby. Like that's okay. Absolutely. And I think, and again, this probably applies to lots of um, occupations and, and sectors as well, or maybe the, more in the creative world and the arts, even performance. If there's something you really love as a hobby, you know, you really, you know, that's where you fill all your spare time, then becomes your job. You might, because it becomes more stressful and more important, you might fall out of love with it. And thankfully, I haven't. Um, but it's it's possible, I suppose, with anything, maybe with sportsmen as well. If you love doing something um, and it doesn't necessarily work out or you get you get stressed over it, then you fall out of love with something that you should should continue to love. 
Um, so that's that's definitely something to consider. Mm. Um, but if you are in love with it and you really are determined and that's your focus, then go for it all the way. Mm. Jump all in, all in. <laughs> Don't hold back. No. So I have to ask you our two final questions um, for the podcast. So the podcast is called The Undiscovered You. So the <laughs> first question is, what have you discovered about yourself along the way? Oof. I think uh, I'm not as hard as I might, tough as I might thought I was. I've learned compassion, I suppose, because you see a lot through your lenses mm. and through your cameras and some some unpleasant things. And that's you don't go looking for it, but it, it happens. And I've often got very cross with myself, you know, my own little world and my camera's up to my eye and I'm looking at something and I, I almost shout at myself this is terrible but i'm i'm doing it because i know it should be done it's for posterity it's for recording it's for it's this important stuff and so um i'm probably a more emotional and softer person than i maybe need to be um and i guess i've become more giving and less judgmental because you can get things so wildly wrong at times. You can, you know, in assessing people and characters on first impressions, and often that first impression can do a complete 180 on you. So I just say be more, I'm, I'm more considerate and I'm not as tough as maybe I ought to be. I wonder if that kindness actually is what makes you such a brilliant photographer, actually, <laughs> is because you do have that in your heart. And even while you're, you still see the humanity, you see the pain, you feel it as well. And I wonder if that comes through in your photographs. Well, I, don't, I mean, that's not for me to say. I've always had a very strong rule about um, covering adversity. I was, never, I was never there to be involved. Obviously, if something terrible happens at your feet and there's something you can do about it to help someone, you do. But overall, you're not there to become part of the story. You're there to shoot it, record it. And if you want to make an effect or do help change or, you know, as a collective, not saying that any one person can do that, you know, do your job to the best of your ability. And we talk about the famous picture from um, Vietnam years ago, of the little girl mm. you know, running the village after it was napalmed. Mm. I have to say there's an amazing picture come out of the crisis in Ukraine, which is the picture of the, 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 the horror so far which has been much discussed and much lauded by an associated press photographer um, called Evgeny Malaletka and a young man, professional photographer, doing an amazing job in, a, in Mariupol. And it was the lady on the stretcher who was pregnant, who was, and, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's just, it's the most amazing. Uh, it's really important not to get involved, I think, um, because you're, you're not there to, to become part of the story. If you do want to make, have an impact and make uh, make a difference, or be a collect part of a collective of, of, of people trying to make a difference, do your job as professionally as possible. And there is an image that we've seen in the last couple of weeks from Ukraine, which is the, sort of the, the still image of, of the of the conflict so far in mine and many other people's eyes by a young associated press photographer called Evgeny Malaletka, and it's a lady after, after the hospital was bombed, she was pregnant on a stretcher. And that will have more impact 
than anything else in, in many people's eyes and increase anger. And I remember being in the situation myself, nothing quite as dramatic as that, but it was in literally two days after the Americans took over Baghdad and I went with some reporters. We'd heard of this young man who'd lost most of his family uh, and he'd lost, I think, both of his legs and an arm. Um, and it was the most terrible story. And it was allegedly due to a, an American missile strike. So we go to this place, we see this guy, and I'm with some lady, very strong, well-known lady correspondents, two of them. And uh, we all kind of welled up. It was a very, very hard moment to see this young 14-year-old, good-looking young boy. His face was untouched, but his body was just, in a terrible state and we thought he was going to die anyway um it was almost too hard to do but we we, we did these images and we, we did this brief interview story others have been there as well and as a collective amongst this press pack you know tv other newspapers other agencies had all done this stuff and because of that the americans had to sort of prick their ears up and think well, we need to step in here and um they did manage to get this young boy out um and they got him into kuwait he got some special health care i mean they said he wasn't going to survive regardless of whether they were going to take him out or not because he was in such a bad way long story short this young man came to the uk in the end and ended up being educated and uh, adopted in uh, in wimbledon in south london i forgive me i forget his name but it was an amazing feeling for us all knowing that you know collectively journalists managed to make a little difference there uh and and get that young man you know to to safety and to sort of great health care uh and I, I i think he's probably still living in the uk but it was it was a it was a great feeling so i think if you, you know it's easy to get easy to get sometimes emotional and you know just sort of want to be part of the moment to help someone but if you really want to help be professional do your job properly and i think about also the little boy who had drowned and there was that picture of him drowned with his dad there and i mean it was just you know he was the same age as my son it was such yeah. a, i mean it just brought it home it was these you know these are people just like us who are just trying to get out of a conflict zone and they're putting their lives at risk and yeah. this is a little boy who's now drowned because of these circumstances and it, it it brings to life what's happening these still photographs bring to life what hap what's happening in such a more impactful way i i agree with you than even some of the footage that you see it does and it, it brings a moment for the decision makers the policy makers the politicians mm. whoever they are to pause and go gulp you know mm. and just think it, it's suddenly something crazy fast moving just gets put on hold for a moment you think actually now is the time to do something so yeah um it's an added bonus if if i mean our work is there uh, i talk from us collectively but our work is there to, to inform and, and tell people what's going on if something bad is happening and because of it i'm not saying any one person can do that unlike this, this image i was talking about from europe ukraine but overall the telling of a story um, from you know journalists from all over the world can make a make a difference for the good then it has to be a good thing mm, yeah press sometimes get bad press but um actually affecting yeah, change well, yeah whole, yeah that's, that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> that's a whole nother discussion all right final question final question i hate to bring this to an end but what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received <laughs> 
course, that's a great question. And um, it's not so much advice, it's, it's an expression. My uncle, my father's twin brother, very, very, very positive, energetic man, a very kind man. And uh, he came out with the phrase one day, and I've, I've taken it with me to many places when I just maybe so frustrating moment. And he, and I, I hear it in his calm voice and he just says, you know, and he called me son, even though he was, he was my uncle, but because I were, we were so close, he says, you know, son, there's no such thing as a problem. It's just an unresolved opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, it's not too fanciful. I think it's, it's a really sort of poignant, um, positive thing to, to, to hear and to have resonate in your mind from time to time when you're having a problem and you think, Basically, whatever the problem is, we can somehow solve this. It's a, it's a, that's the point of what he's saying. It's, it's not a problem you think, oh, my God, just walk away from it. You take it as a positive. You see the problem as a positive, and you make something good out of it, and you try and resolve it um, and, and turn it around. So I think that's sort of advice because it, you can turn it into something practical, but it's an expression that, um, that lingers. I love it. We've got to give your uncle credit. What's his name? Uh, his name is Anthony Nichols. Anthony Nichols. So Anthony Nichols, you have given us one of the best pieces of advice I think <laughs> we've gotten on our podcast. So thank you for that. Peter, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I just, um, first off, thank you for coming on the show and for Great. sharing so honestly your experiences as a photographer. And what I love about it is while while I think pulling those parallels between kind of the business world and what you're doing um, is, you know, it, it's a tenuous link, but I, I, I just absolutely love all the stuff you brought out about starting small, building up and just, um, stay in the light. Actually just thinking about that with your life in general, stay with the light. I actually love that. Thanks, Peter. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Real privilege. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next week when I speak to Jane Jenkins Herlong, a former Miss South Carolina all about being a dream catcher. If you're looking for an executive coach or if you want to get in touch, please check out my website at kljconsulting.co.uk or you can email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope you're one step closer to discovering the Undiscovered You. Mm-hmm.